This service comes to you from Palm Sunday morning at St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois, a near north suburb of Chicago. I'm Richard Lanford, a.k.a. the Redheaded Preacher on this podcast. I welcome you to it and thank you for joining in. It is Palm Sunday, as uh, I've announced, and so did the text about the podcast, which you may have read. Um, and the scriptures are from Psalm 118 and Luke 19. And I'll be honest, this is a bit different because I'm focusing more on Psalm 118 and its connection to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem than I am on the story of the entrance into Jerusalem itself. So I hope you'll find this different take interesting. And may God bless your listening and may God bless my preaching. Our lector today is Karen Christensen, one of our Sunday school teachers and a longtime fruitful member of St. Peter's. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Our first reading is Psalm 118, verse 1 and 2, followed by verses 19 through 29. Psalms 113 through 118 make up what our Jewish friends call the Egyptian halal. These were sung during the great Jewish festivals, including Passover. This would normally be sung after the Passover meal. In fact, you'll see this verse, these verses can be repetitive because it is something that was sung. As we hear it, we can gather why the folks who created the lectionary thought this was good for Palm Sunday. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Yahweh is God, and God has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This ends the reading from Psalm 118. Our second and final reading is Luke's version of what is often called the triumphal entry of Jesus and the disciples coming into Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life. It is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
when he came near Bethage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt, which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he, as, uh, he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Here ends the reading of the Gospel and our scripture readings for Palm Sunday. Thanks be to God for this God's holy word. Years ago, a curious saying took root in our home. Not good enough, Grandma. Now, my brother-in-law is here this morning, so I hope he appreciates the story, and I think he was there for it. He can correct me if Beth and I have it wrong. Well, so one night we were at my mom's house in Columbia Heights, having dinner along with my sister Pam and Jeff and our, our three nieces, which are my mom's three granddaughters, um, Jeff and Pam's three daughters. And my mom asked the eldest if she was seeing anyone. She said yes. My mom, born and bred Minnesotan, asked if this boyfriend was from Minnesota, since the family lived in Wisconsin. No, Reagan said. My mom, old enough to give up the ghost of being diplomatic all the time, replied, not good enough. Our table both laughed and gasped, and our niece Aurora said, not good enough, Grandma. From there on out, if Beth or I found something at home that was inadequate, lacking in something important, we simply say, not good enough, Grandma. As it turned out, that boyfriend truly was not good enough for Reagan. <laughs> not good enough does not pass muster. Defective, ruled out, passed over, not valid, not acceptable. This is not just for non-Minnesotan boyfriends for Reagan, in that context, but for chief cornerstones, the foundations of a structure, perhaps of a life, a spiritual endeavor, the law. Foundations and their chief cornerstones are essential, and they have to be up to the job. Now, it never feels good to be passed over for a raise or a promotion. 
and those of us who in our young lives had parents or adults who made us feel insufficient or weak or not measuring up, those things stung, even if they became motivators for later success. The psalmist may have known that feeling, but it was over far more significant issues than a, a boyfriend or a promotion. The psalmist wanted to be delivered from deep trouble and maybe an enemy in warfare. He was considered expendable, of no real account by his peers, by the builders. But look, God did rescue him. God validated him like the stone the builders decided was unacceptable, got the last laugh, and turned out to be, metaphorically speaking, the chief cornerstone. Now this battle scenario and vindication by God is how my study Bible explains the passage about the rejected stone, now chief cornerstone, in the context of the larger psalm. Now that's helpful to have that awareness. I do enjoy other ways of applying the phrase, like proving the erroneous experts dead wrong. There's an old piece, I think it's even in the church office files, which pretends to be an evaluation of the disciples and who, if any, oh Jesus, are not worth keeping. The writer dismisses Simon Peter, James and John, the sons of thunder, Thomas, Simon the zealot, and so on, even writing off the apostle Paul who was not among the original 12. There is one disciple, however, who has potential, says the writer, Judas Iscariot. Well, that's the opposite of what the psalmist experienced and simply is there to remind us how wrong some experts can be in picking the right stone or person or group. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This psalm is the same one invoked by the disciples' chant when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. There is a connection. That is why every single Palm Sunday lectionary offers Psalm 118 as a reading. If you or I can find some personal meaning or systemic meaning to the rejected stone being the foundation stone after all, I suggest we can also find meaning in the gospel writers putting it into the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, into Zion. And that matters, you know, remembering the so what, that matters if Christ is our chief cornerstone of our spiritual foundation, which is our foundation for life. Now it's true that the passage about the rejected stone becoming the chief cornerstone is not in Luke 19. Just the same psalm is. Luke gives us, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that echoes 118's verse 26, which goes, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And verse 26 is only a few verses after the cornerstone verse. Now, you may disagree, but I do not think it is a stretch to suggest that the disciples were singing not only this blessing on the one coming in the Lord's name, but also that this one is the one the builders rejected and is going to be the chief cornerstone. 
They were singing around the belief that Jesus was the coming one, a king entering Jerusalem before Passover, as Messiah was expected to appear during Passover. Yet rejected by the expert scribes and Pharisees. And Christ would bring that peace in heaven, of which the disciples cheered. This Jesus would become the chief cornerstone or foundation of salvation and our lives, not only through the life he lived and his teachings, but also and ultimately through the crucifixion and resurrection. Believers affirm this. But on Palm Sunday, do you and I, can you and I get another takeaway which guides our lives and encourages our attempts to be people of grace? So the cornerstone is Jesus, but we also base our life on the values we learn from being citizens of the realm or the kingdom, many of which Jesus taught, of course. So you and I know the central, how central the two love commands from the Torah are. Love God with all you are and all you have and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the cornerstone of ethics for so many of us. We include the John 13 commandment that Jesus gave to the disciples after he washed their feet, that we love one another as Jesus loved us. And that's how others will know that we are his followers. We can integrate Jesus' unique command to love our enemies. These are from Christ, the cornerstone. Now just how often these days are the love commands passed over, deemed not good enough, for some other foundation. How many times is love rejected, considered naive, ineffective, misguided, according to so many who make choices impacting society? Or how often rejected by those growing up in environments already deeply saturated by a dog-eat-dog world, where human life is cheap and guns, money, and power are what matter, they are the foundations. How often? Our love and its extensions in works of justice for all, righting wrongs, making peace, planet preservation, forgiveness, integrity, sacrifice. They're written off as impractical when there is money to be made or power to be grabbed. When does ministry to the least of these get taken seriously as a foundation or part of a foundation of life, let alone salvation? We see the violence brutality and inhumanity pummeled onto Ukraine, even as Putin quotes Jesus, invokes Christianity, and has the Russian patriarch Kirill sanctifying the war. We see the climate crisis get worse by the month instead of honoring God's entrusting of humankind to care for creation. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? You and I know well Excuse me, you and I know how well those practices, those values, those foundations have worked for the advancement of the human race and the glory of God in everyday life. In view of those building on selfish or fearful or greedy foundations, the Christ entering his capital to die and be raised for us is still a stone deemed not good enough to be the foundation. Love and justice are not near the throne, let alone be their cornerstone. And we're not asking for a theocracy. We do bear witness 
that our faith sees Jesus crucified and risen as that stone which the experts often go thumbs down on, yet became the chief cornerstone or foundation for lives of grace, striving to enrich the good of the whole. So we who value love, who make it our cornerstone and the foundation of which, from which it comes, especially the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of Jesus, who bids us to love like he does. So we who have these values, what do we do? Well, one thing for sure, we keep on trucking. Noting the failures of experts overall to usually choose foundations that are solid and beneficial for the most people, the world still cries out for peace. There is still need for healing and reconciliation and lifting up and out of misery the least of these. Love, of which Jesus is the embodiment, is still needed. It is still foundational to our ethics, our service, our reason for living, and our faith. So the church and people of goodwill who serve love and integrity do not give up. Our Lenten book study is reading and discussing William Barber II and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove's book, The Third Reconstruction, How a Moral Movement is Overcoming the Politics of Division and Fear. The chapter we read most recently tell, it tells the story, it tells the stories of three separate areas of public concern uh, in North Carolina where Barber is from and where he got you know, a lot of his start. And the stories of these three separate areas of public concern are how Barber and his broad mixed network sought to turn back injustice or immorality or illegality and replace it with something better. Now this network that he speaks of and writes about and has experienced, it's not all made up of Christians. And the various groups do not always share the same priorities or focus, but they all show up to help and bear witness with the others in their efforts for the good of the whole. He calls these fusion coalitions. And they succeeded in each of those three stories, taking on powerful interests that were not intent on the public good or even following the law in one case. If time allowed, I could tell you one of them, but the book is available. I have three copies in the study, and you can join the study. Our next time is April 27th, as the bulletin announcements say. For Barber and the Christ followers in those coalitions, Jesus and the values of the realm of God flowing out of love were the cornerstone, were the foundation. They did not give up, and communities were more blessed as a result. Shalom got a little closer. Now, as I come to a close, I want to share this with you. I've always been drawn to the uniquely Lucan phrase, if these were silent, meaning the disciples, the very stones would shout out. Or, as some of us learned it, the very stones would cry out. If people were silenced, it seems to say, parts of the creation would bear witness then to Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the foundation to build on instead. It's very poetic. But this year I dug deeper. Was Jesus perhaps referring to something in the Old Testament that I'd never bothered to think about? You know, sometimes there are invocations of something in the Hebrew Scriptures 
that I'm not even aware that that's what's going on, and yet that'll enrich the meaning. So I looked this up and I found Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. We benefit from listening it, not listening just to verse 11, but 9, 10, and 11. Habakkuk wrote, Alas, for you who get evil gain for your houses, setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall, and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. So the houses in Habakkuk were built by prophets evilly gained, and the perpetrators tried to protect where they lived. They cut peoples off, according to one commentator, meaning that they sought to annihilate the very lives of others. Though God said that, brought shame to their would-be dynasty. The dynasty for which those injustices were committed. The high nest did not work. David Baker wrote, even inanimate creation, the very building material of the intended house, will cry out in protest at the injustice perpetrated for its benefit. Can Jesus have meant that those Palm Sunday stones would cry out to Jesus to protest the injustice of his coming crucifixion? Maybe. Or enjoy that Christ and those who built upon his foundation of justice and love would, in God's time, nonviolently, successfully overcome the wickedness known long since before Habakkuk and on through the Pharisees, Sanhedrin, and Caesars of Christ's day and on to our day. I wonder. In faith, we know that the Jesus acclaimed upon his entrance into Jerusalem is the same one who, like the cornerstone of the psalm, was rejected. He wasn't good enough. In fact, the Pharisees and scribes, etc., they feared him greatly. In their ultimate act of refusal, he was crucified. But in ultimate validation, he was raised on the third day. God's love and truth were vindicated. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Through that event, we can say, unlike my mom, more than good enough, the chief cornerstone is laid. Amen. We have now entered Holy Week, and I thank you for listening, starting the journey with us whenever you do listen. We'll be going through Monday, Thursday, but without a podcast. Our next podcast will be about Resurrection Sunday, and on that Sunday, April 17th. We pray that you'll be able to tune in then and hear the indefatigable, or indefatigable, the unbeatable news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Until then, even though it is Lent and a difficult week for the soul, May God bless your week and keep you aware of Christ's presence throughout all of it. Amen. Like what you've heard? Hit subscribe to follow and get updates on our newest additions to The Red-Headed Preacher. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online under most social media platforms 
by typing St. Peter UCC Skokie in your browser. Donations are much needed and very welcomed. You can donate to us by going to paypal.me backslash St. Peter UCC Skokie. This information and more can also be found in the show notes wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you so much.